Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the number one real dialogue podcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and all of us here are glad you're here. Every entrepreneur and every person who's creative wants to have a deeply fulfilling professional and personal life. But it can be easy to get distracted and pulled off course, which is why we all need touchstone moments to remind us of what matters. And that's exactly what this episode is. Our guest is lifelong entrepreneur, co-founder, and chairman at Lomi, Brad Peterson. He's got a new bestseller out called Startup Santa, a toy maker's tale of 10 business lessons learned from timeless toys. And it's great. If you're a regular listener, you'll remember episode 322 with his partner at Lomi, Matt Bertulli. What you're about to experience is a deeply personal conversation about life and startups, the toy business, and Brad's learnings from creating Lomi, which is pioneering the smart home composter category and has become the fastest growing new kitchen appliance category in over a decade. If you think real, meaningful conversations about life and business matter, you're in the right place. Now, most CEOs have a tough time answering the most important question in business. Are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? And according to research from our friends at Clary, the average company has 14.9% revenue leak, which is revenue that they earn but that falls through the cracks. In good times and in bad, every drop of revenue matters. Go to Clary.com and calculate your potential revenue leak. That's Clary.com, C-L-A-R-I.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So how are you, Brad? I'm doing amazing, Chris, and I am so stoked to be on this program with you. <laughs> well, I'm so stoked to have you. I can already tell you you're one of my favorite guests of all time. I I love it when entrepreneurs I know and have had a chance to work with um, uh, are willing to do this with me, so I appreciate it. Well, I, uh, I've been a fan of yours for some time. I still remember when one of my friends, actually a colleague of mine, said, hey, you need to read this book, Play Bigger, and... Um, I remember picking up the book and it was interesting because I, I was in the toy space and when I saw it play bigger, I thought, oh, maybe this is going to be about, you know, how we're supposed to chase our, our childlike passion to be more playful. And while that certainly was teased out, I, I got a sense that you're a very playful person. I was so blown away at uh, the wisdom distilled in that book. And of course, um, that led me to follow up with you in terms of Category Pirates, uh, focusing on your podcasts. And so... Love your work and have really been following it, as you know. Become friends through the process and uh, excited to, to jam with you today on some of those topics. Well, thank you for your kind words. And, you know, it is an interesting thing as a side note. You know, when you put things out in the world, you know, in this case, a book and then podcasts and newsletters and all the stuff that have come since, you just never know what's going to come back. And I remember on the eve of the launch of Play Bigger, I thought, well... This is it. This is my last ditch attempt to get category design to kind of go kerplunk at any kind of scale. Otherwise, if this doesn't work, I'll just be the weird guy in the corner drooling on myself about all this stuff. 
And what you can't know, certainly as a first-time author or first-time creator, is when you put signal into the world, what's going to come back? And mm. uh, you and Matt and, and working with the entire Lomi team has been an incredible gift. And if that's the quote-unquote only gift I got from writing that book, then uh, it was all worth it, Brad. Yeah, isn't it amazing the thin threads that connect things together? Like you having the courage to say, you know, I'm going to lean into this and write something and maybe sometime down the road that some founder somewhere might be inspired by this work to the point where he wanted to reach out and connect in a more meaningful way and how that's led to our relationship. I I love it. It's a great story. It's amazing. And you know, it really shows the power, frankly, of the internet. We can scale in a way, we can scale ideas and conversations in a way that we never could before. It's amazing. Yeah. And I would take it one step further though. I would just add to it, the courage required to actually put something out there to, you know, for founders to release their, their ideas into the wild for thought leaders to, you know, be bold enough to print it. I know there's a, a bunch of stuff that holds us back, imposter syndrome and all that kind of good stuff, but I'm just glad you didn't, you didn't uh, succumb to the fear of that. Well, well, thank you. And I'm, I'm curious why you use the word courage to put something out. Why, why that choice of that word, Brad? So courage is a, is, well, first of all, I love courage. It's actually one of the, um, one of our core virtues that we talk about at Lomi and, um, you know, the definition, best definition I've heard of courage is, you know, it's that bliss point between recklessness and, uh, carelessness, right? You're trying to ensure that you've got the courage to lean forward and, and try things, but make sure you're not trying so hard that you're actually being reckless in the way you're doing it. And, um, if you go back in time, Aristotle had actually, uh, distilled the original four virtues, which were justice, prudence, temperance, and courage. And he talked about courage being the cardinal virtue because none of the other three matter unless you first have the courage to actually make a decision and to try something. So I, um, I use the word courage because I, I just, I think it's that stepping into the unknown. Um, you know, ideas are, are like noses, everyone's got them but it's actually having the courage to actually put some effort behind it um, in the face of criticism and challenges and, and all kinds of, you know, tumults that one can expect when they actually do actually lean into the possibilities of finding out what, what's within them and what's, how they can build value in the world. Well, I think it's a very powerful thing. I find it interesting that people don't want to do that. I mean, I respect people's choice if you want to just you know, most people in the digital world don't participate. They're consumers. And that's fine if you don't want to participate. Uh, I, I do think that, uh, and I know we share this value, if you're lucky enough in any field, but the world we live in is the entrepreneurial uh, world, um, if you're lucky enough to make it to the top of a mountain, throw down a fucking rope. And some of us were lucky enough to have legendary people in the past throw us ropes hmm. and i for one appreciate all those who threw me a rope and there were people who threw me a rope that i'll never meet like david ogilvy and there were many others who i met in person and who helped me in incalculable ways over time and i still get a lot of help and i still need a lot of help um and so i think you know when entrepreneurs or anybody who's learned things of value that is somewhat unique and somewhat interesting. 
um, why not contribute that back? Why not throw down that rope? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. Even just speaking to you're talking about to me is mentorship. Um, you know, I, I think that amongst founders today, there's this sort of false belief that, you know, there's some Yoda like individual who is out there that they need to like tap into to be able to um, advance their, their, their strategy or their business forward. And, and yes, those people are out there, but they're typically in the form of podcasts, books, <laughs> maybe go to a seminar. I mean, most of my men- mentorship has come from me going to seek out these opportunities. And once in a while, I get an opportunity to hang out with a really bright mind like yours and just pick it and say, okay, I need some mentorship as it comes down to category design. And uh, those opportunities are rare. That's not been my experience that that's a common way that I actually get my mentoring these days. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing to say. I mean, the cool thing about the native digital world, of course, is when I was a kid coming up, I I had no real way to access David Ogilvie. I mean, I guess I could have gone to see him speak somewhere and maybe waited in line and got an autograph and told him I thought he was awesome. So maybe that was a possibility. But that would have probably been um, it, unless I was willing to write him, you know, nonstop letters and bother him to get write me back. But of course, in the digital world, we can reach out and touch people. The, the other th- interesting thing about sort of particularly younger folks looking for mentorship is... I think an entire generation, Brad, has gotten very confused because there's all these hustle porn stars out there and their business model is predicated on envy. Hmm. Uh, you know, the Kardashians really mastered this, right? Don't you wish you were me? Look at me, look at me. Um, I'm going to stand here in front of my fucking plane and, you know, all, all that stupidity. And the interesting thing about real mentors I'd be curious as to your reaction, but the mentors that I've had did not purposely create separation between me and them, even though they were incredibly more accomplished than me. Hmm. As a matter of fact, they did the opposite. They made me feel like I belonged in the same room or in the same conversation with them. They knew who they were. You know, the, the mentors that I have that are extraordinary, you know, I was texting this morning with, a billionaire who's an extraordinary person who, if I told you their name, you'd know it immediately, um, who's done incredible things in the tech startup world. And this guy knows who he is. This guy Mm -hmm. knows he's the fucking man. And he's still humble. He's still accessible. He still believes deeply in entrepreneurship. He still wants to talk to a person with a dream and a few slides um, and respects all of that. And so the other thing about mentorship that's interesting is in this hustle porn world, a lot of particularly younger people, really an entire generation has been duped into thinking that, well, a mentor is up here and I'm down here. And won't I be lucky to get them to come down from the mountain to me, as opposed mm-hmm. to what really happens, which is a real mentor throws the rope down and helps pull you up because, Yes, maybe they're more accomplished than you. Yes, maybe they're older than you. Yes, maybe they've achieved much more than you. But they're still a person. And they're not trying to create separation. They're actually trying to create connectedness. So I have a bunch of ideas on this one. um, Because I would say as an entrepreneur, um, early on, so much of my identity was on what I did. Okay? The business that I built, the size and scale matter, right? Um, And then some identity came from what I had you know, the having. 
And what I've come to learn is it's actually about who I'm becoming. And if you focus on the becoming piece, the doing and the having actually kind of are byproducts of it and they're not that important. And so for me, as I seek out mentors, the first thing I'm looking for, what's the fruit on the tree? And if they're trying to impress me with what they have or what they do, that quite frankly are false tells to actually who they are as beings. And they don't necessarily, you know, again, I, I, it's nice to show the trappings of success and all that, but actually, as we both know, that is a, a faulty game that will be never ending. Like one of the things I talk about is the four P's versus the four C's. So if you think about marketing and media, usually the point of, of media is that it's, it's telling you you're not enough, right? That you aren't complete yet. And unless you have this thing or go to this place or, you know, how, whatever, that's going to make you feel more complete, right? And it's chasing the four P's, which is power, prestige, possessions, and pleasure. That's typically where it goes. And yet, if I asked you the most important memories that you and I have created over the last um, year, let's just say, I almost guarantee you would say something like, it was a dinner with my wife. It was hanging out with my best friends. It was surfing that epic wave. It was launching my new book, which none of those have anything to do with the four Ps. In fact, those are the four Cs of challenges, creativity, charity, and connections. And yet we're constantly chasing these Ps. If you look at your calendar, at least I, I do this audit all the time. I look at my calendar and say like, well, how much of my time am I, even though my best memories come from chasing those four things, how much of my time am I dedicating to that? And it's always crazy that so much of my calendar historically, and I have to catch myself continually, is chasing these ephemeral things that quite frankly aren't going to last and never bring lasting uh, purpose and pleasure. In fact, when you get that nice car, you're happy for like a day, maybe not even a day. And then you're thinking about the next one because ultimately these things are like heroin hits where you get one. You get that rush and then guess what? You got to go get another one because the dopamine serotonin isn't flowing on a continual basis. But if you're in the four C's, guaranteed you're feeling joy, bliss, connectedness, things that actually intrinsically hold value. So I say all that to say that as you're thinking about mentors and people who you really want to um, help guide you in life, ask the question, do they have the fruit on the tree? Not in the things they have or necessarily what they do, but do, do they show up as a person that has become someone of excellence, of virtue, or as the Greeks talked about, arite. They are using all their God-given faculty to its fullest potential to be able to make the most of who they really can be. Amen, brother. To that regard, I made this decision a long time ago. I, I didn't want to spend any time with anybody who's not over themselves. Right. That is to say, if you're still a big deal for you, uh, great, then go be a big deal. But uh, I, I, I don't want to get on your fucking boat. One of my best friends has a boat. He's an extraordinary mm. sailor, a world-class sailor. And he's got a world-class sailing boat. And when you go out on the boat with him, what you do is have a really fucking good time with a world-class sailor and enjoy being on the boat and drink beer and enjoy the beauty of it and have incredible conversation. What's not happening on the boat is him telling you how great he is because he has a fucking boat. Hmm. And so that shit's exhausting. You and I have both known these people. You want to hear a funny story about this? I won't mention his name because, I don't know, I probably should. But anyway, a douchebag <laughs> that I used to know, 
he became a billionaire for a little while. He's, he's, uh, he's actually gone bankrupt now because he's a piece of shit. Mm. And I'll never forget this guy because in the late 90s, when he became a paper billionaire, I remember saying to my wife, we are going to fire up a browser or read a newspaper and read one day that this guy went bankrupt. And about a couple, two, maybe two years ago, Brad, the uh, bank repossessed his fucking house. Hmm. Just the, the arc of history tends to bend in the right direction. Uh, JFK, or not JFK, excuse me, MLK has a great quote right. about that. Anyway, um, so when this guy was first making stupid money, we were with a group of friends and there was an old CEO there, a much older CEO who was a sensei kind of a guy, master sensei kind of a mm. guy. And he was, he was a throw down the rope kind of guy mm -hmm. and he was very wealthy and all that, but he was not, you know, an egomaniac like this. Anyway, this younger guy was an egomaniac. Anyway, he just got back from a buying trip in Europe where he bought fucking, you know, huge, huge uh, furniture and art and all this shit and had it all shipped over in crates and blah, blah, blah. And so he was trying to impress everybody with his stories of all of his great ancient acquisitions and so forth and how much everything costs. He had one of these assholes who has to tell you how much everything costs, right? And then he pulls, he pulls up this watch and he's fucking this, oh, I got this new watch and da, da, da. It, was, I don't know, it was like $250,000 fucking watch in 1998, right? And he's going on and on and on about it. And he's trying to get everybody to be impressed. Well, there was there was a real problem with the watch, which is, you ever see one of these high-end watches that's got all this shit on it and you can't fucking tell mm. what time it is? <laughs> okay, so A, that yeah. was problem number one. Anyway, he takes the watch off and he's got to show it to everybody to prove what, a, what an awesome guy he is and why we should all love him because of this fucking watch. And the CEO, Master Sensei guy, who happened to be in the group at the time, as the watch is going around, he looks at it. And uh, the asshole is doing his pitch about why this is such a great watch. And he says, and they only built, I don't forget how many, 500 of these things or whatever the number was, right? And, and uh, the master sensei CEO guy in front of the whole group looked at the young asshole and said, they built that many and you still bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's, uh, that's, that's a great story. I, uh, but it, it is kind of funny. Like it, it just speaks to how, and again, I think at different times in my life, I'd have to admit that, you know, my ego was definitely driving the bulk of, of my decision-making, but I think it's very helpful. And by the way, I think that that philosophy really is about how people can, how people like that use people to acquire things when the real magic is, you know, uh, use things to acquire meaningful relationships with people. I think Arthur Brooks said it really well when he said, you know, love people, use things, worship the divine. If you could summarize life and the principles of, of what we're trying to strive for, I think it's a pretty simple uh, overall philosophy on how to, to get there. But certainly, um, you know, I think it, the, the thing that's super helpful is knowing that, you know, we're, we're not here that long. In fact, our life is like a flicker in the wind. I, I, I like to fast forward a hundred years from now. There's a good chance I'm not here. Maybe, maybe they're going to have some, you know, carbonangulator, like as you like to call them, uh, come along that's going to jack my life to the ability to live to 150. But I only want that if it's going to be quality, by the way. I don't want to just kind of be some, you know, drooling, uh, incognite person that's <laughs> hanging out uh, in some old age home. It has to be some kind of quality. But the point is, is that we're all dying. Momentum more, right? It's the clear awareness that you are going to die 
And that's actually okay. So knowing that that's true, then how important is this moment and that thing that you bought that you think you're trying to impress others with? Because no one really cares and you're not taking it with you. And quite frankly, people aren't even thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. So that's the reality. Well, amen to that too. I mean, uh, is Biden the 46th president of the United States? As a Canadian, I wouldn't be able to answer that intelligently. So, <laughs> I think it's forty six. I think I think uh, if I'm, my memory was right, President Trump was forty five, and I think uh, Biden's forty six. Anyway, I'm close enough for rock and roll. Fifty or less. So there have been fifty or less presidents of the United States. Hmm. A lot of people, certainly in the United States, would say that that's the quote unquote most powerful person in the world. Certainly one of them, and certainly you know a critically important person in the United States. I don't know if the average American can name 10. Hmm. And so there's all this bullshit. You hear it today in business. Oh, what, what legacy do we want to live? I want to leave a legacy. And it's like, um, well, if the most powerful person in the country, and some would argue certainly one of the most powerful people in the world, if there's been roughly 50 of them and most people can't name 10, um, you're you may be over fucking rotating on the importance of your fucking legacy. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Not to mention, I think of the past presidents, I think only four are still alive, right? George Bush Jr., Obama, Trump, Clinton, and Biden, right? Oh, well, five, and five. and uh, Carter's still alive. Carter's <laughs> Carter went into hospice six oh, or okay. six or nine months or something like that, and he's still having living life in hospice. So go. Carter might, might uh, outlive all of us. There you go. But of the 45 or 46, six are alive. It just, again, just reinforces the point that even the most powerful man in the planet isn't, uh, is not going to be remembered and certainly not going to be here forever. So that's right. 46. Yeah. Biden's 46. Um, hmm. But to me, you know, some people get depressed about that. Oh, my life doesn't mean anything because nobody's going to remember me in 20,000 years. Hmm. Well, I think about it this way. My grandfather's name was Jack, Scottish. A lot of people call him Jackie, like Jackie Stewart. Hmm. And um, Jack and my father, Bruce, were the two most important men in my life. And uh, I'm grateful Bruce is still around. And Jack died when I was about 15 or 16. And so one of the two most impactful men in my life ever and one of the most impactful people in my life ever, well, uh, you know, there's not that many people alive today that know he lived. Hmm. There's just not. Uh, one of his children has died, uh, an uncle of mine, and, um, you know, there's there's grandchildren, of course, and they still remember their great-grandfather, um, those who were alive when he was alive, and those who weren't hear stories of him and know why we loved him and what a great man we think he was and so forth. But the reality is here you have a man who lived an extraordinary life, who worked incredibly hard, who loved his family dearly, who, who contributed to the world, who fought in World War II for the Allies, um, mm. and... and in my opinion, is an extraordinary human being. And a handful of people know that he ever lived. And he's certainly mm -hmm. one of the most important human beings to me. And on one hand, you could find that very depressing. On the other hand, it's a little freeing. It's like, you know, let's not 
fucking take our... Maybe you're not that fucking important. You know, there's a thing in martial arts called humble yourself. Hmm. And there's an expression that goes like this. In martial arts, you will either be humble or be humbled. Yeah, I think that's that's an important point. I think the humility piece, actually, that that is a very grounding thing. Is And it's where we, as humans, get hung up in in our belief of our importance when you know i I like to do the you know you need a telescope and a microscope approach to to life and you know the the telescope is to zoom out and look at the context that you're a speck on a speck that's floating in a galaxy that's in an infinitely expanding universe and so relative to everything that is going on in the universe what you're doing is really not that important and that can be a little bit depressing but then if you reverse it and do the microscope zoom in, realizing that you're the only one of you that's ever been made like you since the beginning of time and ever will be, which makes you incredibly unique and important in this moment in time. Like if we went to Mars right now and we found like a single cell organism, it would like blow our brains. We would be like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And yet we have these incredible life forms here that make up us and all of the other creation that surrounds us. And, and it's easy to take it for granted, but understand that it's actually as a, as in the tapestry of time, this is only, there's only gonna be one just like you. And this is a very unique moment and therefore make the most of it because otherwise we could be like Nietzsche and, you know, be, it means nothing. <laughs> There's no purpose, and we should just roll over and die. As a teenage punk rocker, I uh, <laughs> I like to wallow in the misery of Nietzsche readings as I listen the, to punk rock and hated the world. <laughs> the nihilism comes easy really easy. Go. <laughs> yeah, for nihilism sure. does come very easy. Mm-hmm. Now, Brad, when did you know you were different? Hmm. Yeah, this is a great question because this, I get asked all the time, or you know entrepreneurs are they is it nature or is it nurture and the more time i spend with entrepreneurs i don't think there's actually a clear delineation but i'm defaulting to it is more nature i feel like i knew at a very young age that i was different um mostly because i got in trouble a lot i was pretty mischievous you know i was you and i can remember this but i got the strap you know three times in grade school um and it wasn't because I was being real bad. I mean, I was you were just a, you were a little to, you were a little boy. You were a rabble rouser. It's because in a lot of ways, it's called being a boy. It's called pushing the possibilities, right? Like rules are meant to be tested just to see how far you can go. Yeah, where's the edge? How, what can I get away with? That's right. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I would also say I didn't feel like I ever fit in. You know, school was it was fine, but I don't ever feel like I felt I belonged. Um, I wasn't into team sports really as a kid. Um, to this day, you know, I'm, my, I, I'm an outdoor enthusiast, basically in solo sports, you know, that's the kind of stuff I chase. So I just, I, and I just, I thought differently than most. And um, it started entrepreneurialism at an early age. I was like doing things like when I was a young teenager, sneaking into golf courses after hours, taking my snorkel mask and gear, diving in the pond, go collect all those golf balls, put them into egg cartons and sell them for five bucks, you know, cost of goods is zero, like perfect business. Um, you know, my dad, um, he was an amazing mentor of mine and you know, like love that you were talking about, you know, the men in your life that made, uh, influence, but we lived on this acreage, um, out in a forest in rural Canada. And, uh, I started my first real business. Which, which province, where did you grow up, Brad? 
I grew up in Alberta. You did. So I knew you were in the West, but I wasn't exactly sure where. Yeah. So how far, how far outside of Calgary? Like if you want to, or what, what's the name of the town? Maybe I know it. The town is called Red Deer. Ron McLean, you know yeah, who he is? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that, that I is, I mean, I've been you know, to Calgary. I've been to Banff. I've been to Lake Louise. I don't think I've been to Red Deer, but I have a sense of right. where that is. Yeah. Lots of hockey players, agriculture, oil. You know, it's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there. So my first real business was on the back of, of my dad. Um, so we lived on an acreage in rural Alberta. And as I said, it's really, you know, it's not the end of the world, but you could see it from there. And, uh, but it was kind of this amazing opportunity to, to just, you know, explore. I was, as a kid, I, I'd go hiking in the forest. I had dirt bike. I mean, it was incredible. What an amazing way to grow up. But then I got this idea, I can make some money here. I mean, the opportunity with all of these trees is incredible. So I used my dad's truck, his chainsaw, his mall, and had endless crown land around me. And I just went and harvested wood. And I, I looked in the local paper to see what they were selling wood for. And I agreed to match that price. Plus I would stack it. But again, my cost of goods was really me, my time. And I got so busy that I ended up hiring my buddies from school and uh, they came out and uh, I, I basically funded all my exploits as a young kid. I'd love to go into the mountains and skiing and doing all kinds of, you know, uh, adventure things. And, and that's how I funded the fun. It was, uh, it was cool. But, you know, again, just the question is like, when did I know it was different? When I was thinking that way, just like looking at the opportunities and possibilities, where is there a problem and how can I apply my creative agency to create some kind of meaningful solution with the resources I had? Yeah, funny that uh, those of us with different brains that are entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneur tilted, so to speak, we think about that. I mean, I can remember uh, as young as I can remember looking at a business or looking at something and go, why is that that way? Why does it have to be that? I, I remember saying my, I have an uncle who is a now retired, but a political science professor at a community college for his whole career. And I can remember being a very young kid and saying to him, you know, how do you get a law change? There's some bullshit laws, you know, and I, I'm not, a, I'm not sure I was 10 years old, right? Or how come this works that way? Or why do they do that? Or that doesn't make any fucking sense. The reason that store's laid out that way. Don't they get it? I, I mean, and, and does your brain do that on a regular basis? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I don't know. I, I've never been in anybody else's brain, so I don't know exactly how theirs work. But mine is odd and, you know, usually is looking at possibilities and opportunities and people see a problem. I'm like, well, it could be a potential opportunity. I, 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 you find that for yourself? Oh, fuck. As I've explained it to people, you know, I've tried, I tried for years and years and years to, to, uh, shake category design, you know, which we, which we now describe as a different lens on business. Hmm. And I, the truth is it owns me. I don't it, own it. It thinks me. I don't think it. I'm driving around and I look at a sign and I go, those fucking dumbasses. Why the fuck are they doing that? That doesn't make any fucking sense. It, it just goes off in my brain all day. It's a running commentary. <laughs> I'm like, wow, they could fucking double their revenue if they just fucking, you know, this, I, I don't have, to, I don't work at this. This just is going mm. on. This is just the fucking riffraff in my, you know, the, 
the squirrels juggling chainsaws in my brain, they juggle business, <laughs> startup, entrepreneur, category design, marketing chainsaws. <laughs> and I think once you've had a chance to think that way, which is different, uh, don't you feel like it's like the matrix? Like you literally see the world differently. You can see a marketing campaign and you can determine, you actually know what they're trying to do. And then you can see the flaws in the way that they're positioning it or the branding or whatever is happening. You don't just see it for what it is. You see what's going on behind it, the thinking. And then you're constantly thinking, I would change that. I think I would do it this way. And I think it's one of the things that I love about working with Matt. He's such a different thinker and he can identify things and then just spin it around and take it and go, oh, that is really, you know, unique. That stands out. That's, that's going to get attention. That's remarkable. Absolutely. I'll give you a simple example. So I try to be a student of languaging, the strategic use of language to change thinking. Mm -hmm. So I'm always curious about why people use certain words. So I'll, I'll drive by a truck in, in the neighborhood and it'll say, you know, Jim Smith, full service plumber. And I think to myself, what the fuck does full service mean? Have we ever seen a sign that said Jim Smith, partial service plumber? Like it's, it's, it's a completely throwaway term. It's 100% meaningless. It's a term that is used in all sorts of industries. PR firms and marketing firms use it all. Oh, we're a full service or the other one you hear now in the tech industry is, we're a f I'm a full stack, blah, 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 whatever the fuck. <laughs> Has anybody ever said they're a half stack fucking developer of I don't Partial know what? Stack. <laughs> and Single so, stack. Yeah, exactly. And so I look at these terms, and this is just an example, but this is going on in my brain all the time. And I go, how did an entire fucking group of people get convinced to paint, in this case, on their truck or on their homepage of their website, two words, full service, that are a thousand percent meaningless in any context. They're fucking meaningless and there's no counter to it. Hmm. You know, another simple example is half ass. Nobody ever, that's the opposite, right? Nobody ever says, Hey Brad, let's go fucking launch the new Lomi and let's make sure we do it full ass. Yeah. Right. So yeah. how does half ass become? And so anyway, my point is my fucking brain is always Juggling, uh, mm. juggling those kinds of chainsaws. Yeah. I, I've heard you riff on minimum viable product, the MVP. Oh, <laughs> Which, fuck. Who wants a minimum viable car? Minimum viable dentist? You, you like want to get on a minimum people? viable plane? <laughs> You're going to go to a, do your sales pitch for your startup of your v version A of version one of your product and go, hey, this is our minimum viable product. Don't you want to buy it? It's the dumbest yeah. three words you could string together in entrepreneurship. But everybody yeah. fucking does it. Same thing with product market fit. Mm. There was no market for Lomi. The category potential for Lomi when you and Matt and the team launched was fucking zero. There was fucking mm. zero demand for smart home composter. Zero. Mm -hmm. Nobody was buying yeah. them. Nobody was asking for them. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody was thinking about it. Right. Oh, let's fit. Let's try and fit Lomi into the market. Well, there is no market for Lomi. Why? You got to design a new one. And it turns out everybody mm. legendary, that's what they did. Nobody legendary fit their thing into an existing market. And yet we now have an entire industry going, oh, we're trying to achieve product market fit. 
the fuck? <laughs> Just think. Think about the fucking words. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. this shit's going on in my dumbass brain. I and I can't I can't do anything about it. It's it's not yeah. It's just going. Right. I do by the way, I do think founder problem fit is a way better way to describe it. That makes way more sense. So kudos to you for calling us out on silly isms that we've come up with that we just accept as the way it is. So um it's good to rethink our language and imagine how it can be more impactful, right? Yeah, well, hey, thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. So let's do some fucking thinking every once in a while before we open our mouths and say something that we might think is smart, but actually sounds really fucking stupid when you think about it. <laughs> mm, agreed. Yeah. The other one I love, it's it's one of my all-time favorites. You ever notice, Brad, that virtually any time somebody says to you, well, to make a long story short, they're in the middle of telling you a very long story. Mm-hmm. Which is why I use the expression, which I believe is much more accurate, well, to make a long story longer, because in point of fact, I'm telling you a long story. <laughs> that That is actually very accurate. And I've heard you say that many times, to make a long story longer. And then you've said it actually two or three times in a row. So you, I, 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 it is self-awareness, though. At least you're very aware that your story might be going long. So I, I appreciate that about you, Chris. <laughs> Now, why did you want to write this book, Brad? I mean, you you put your heart and soul into this thing. I I, I could tell. Mm. And this is not a, oh, I'll just hire a ghostwriter and bang out some bullshit kind of a book. This this book means a lot to you. And there's a lot mm. of learning and a lot of heart and a lot of soul in this book. And so maybe tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, the real truth is I didn't want to write this book. In fact, there's two reasons I didn't want to write it. Number one was it just seemed daunting. Like it just seemed... Like it'd be a lot of work. Um, yeah. I mean, I know about myself as a, as a founder. I'm a really good starter and I'm a really good finisher. It's the in-betweens, that messy middle where I suck. And so the idea of hours and hours and hours and hours, and actually I went more than that to make a long story longer um, to get a book done just seemed daunting. So I didn't want to do it. Um, the second was, you know, the world's already a pretty noisy place. And I was like, why does it need another voice, right? I, I mean, I don't need to contribute to all the noise that's out there. And so where I landed is I said, you know, you know, our brains are really good for coming up with creative ideas, but they really are terrible for retaining information. We have this recency bias and the rest of it kind of leaks out the back. So I was like, I got to capture some of these uh, experiences and moments um, through my journey to the toy business because I've had a bit of a Forrest Gump-like life. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff as I was on my tour of duty through the world of toys. And so started off with it being a memoir. Some of my colleagues asked if they could read some of the opening chapters. And then I got feedback from them saying, it would be selfish for you to not release this into the marketplace because there's a lot of wisdom from your wounds here that would be beneficial for other founders to learn from. So I tell people that this is not a to-do book. This is a what not to do book because, you know, while I didn't get an MBA from university, I got a PhD in DUMB from the School of Hard Knocks. I have done all the wrong things. And sometimes I did it more than once. And um, this was an opportunity for me to just stop and reflect uh, and just unpack some of those stories and wisdom. And kind of the unexpected, Greg, to make my long story longer, um, was it was healing. Like it was so cathartically healing for me to go back and kind of complete loops of things that happened and maybe didn't fully comprehend or, or process it. 
you know, my, my coach says to me all the time, you know, we don't learn from what happens. We, we learn only by stopping to reflect on what happens and unpacking the possibilities and wisdom within that. And so for me, this three-year journey of writing this book, actually, there would be moments I'd be writing, I'd be in tears, just literally processing grief, healing, forgiveness, mostly for myself, quite frankly, because like I said, made lots of stupid mistakes. Um, and um, look, it's, it's, it's a story of my journey through the toy business, but really it's more than that. I, I've taken every chapter, an iconic toy and toys you'd know, like Monopoly and Etch-A-Sketch and G.I. Joe's, Jenga. I talk about the history of those toys, where they came from, what they're trying to teach us. Because play is about, you know, three things. Problem solving. We're, we're learning how to grow and develop problem solving. We're learning social skills. We're learning how to interact with others. And we're learning how to be more creative. And so that is how play helps us to develop as kids. And what happens is that, you know, we stop playing, we get old. There's actually, I think, uh, George Bernard Shaw has this, we don't stop playing because we get old, we get old because we stop playing. And it's actually true. Like, you know, at kids, everything's possible. There is no limitations. But when we become adults, suddenly we feel the fear and we stop instead of doing it anyways. And we just start setting up these constraints about our comfort zone. So every toy has some lessons to teach us. I then tell a story about my experience in the toy business, a bunch from things like going bankrupt and getting fired and, you know, having recalls and having employees who did bad things and all kinds of craziness. Um, and then unpack the learnings and what I learned and then tie the things together. So, um, like I said, for me, it, it was more than anything it was a benefit for me, but I think it's going to be helpful for the right founders who are starting out and really want to see you know, is there a way to benefit from my wisdom that I gleaned only by going through some very difficult and challenging circumstances as it relates to business? You said, well, you said a lot of legendary shit there, but one that really struck me, uh, Brad, wisdom from your wounds. And I've often thought, mm -hmm. can we be smart enough to learn from other people's failure? Can, can, can I be smart enough? Like, do I have to have this failure and go through this to learn this? Or could I possibly learn this in a podcast or in a book or in a course or what have you? And so wisdom from wounds. The, hmm. the other thing interesting, you, you said, well, why, why write this? Because I don't want to contribute to the noise. And I hear things like that a lot. Oh, you know, there's so many books out there. There's 2 million podcasts or 3 million, whatever the fuck it is now. And there's 12 billion newsletters or whatever, whatever. And can I tell you a quick story about this? Sure. Yeah. So I have a niece who um, grew up very modestly. She's an incredible hard charger. And she's now uh, a senior person at Spotify in, in the United States. Incredible. She didn't go to a good school. She didn't do any of that shit. She managed bands as a teenager and worked her way up. And she's She's a one woman wrecking ball of results. She's incredible. I just, this kid is amazing. Anyway, <clears throat> my favorite new band of the last 20 years is a band called Whiskey Myers. And I fucking love everything about this band. I think they're the, the best analogy I can come up with is they're the guns and roses of country music. I mean, they're just fucking, hmm. I, to my taste, they're as great as a new band can possibly be. Anyway, it turns out that they uh, they were playing a festival uh, here in the Monterey Bay area. And so reached out to her and said, uh, look, I know this is a long shot, but 
is there any chance at all, you know, you could get us to meet this, meet the band? So she flies out and we go meet the band and before the show. And they, first of all, they were wonderful young men, hmm. very affable, very friendly. They don't want to do this shit. You do, if you're, you imagine you're them, you want to meet some person from fucking Spotify and their uncles and, hmm. you know, cause I was there with my brother and all this shit. And you don't want to do that. It's an hour before the show. You want to fuck off and relax. I'm assuming. Anyway, they were very nice. It was wonderful. We shook their hands. We told them how amazing we thought they were. And interestingly enough, as a side note, uh, from an entrepreneur perspective, they own all their music. Nice. They are their own record label. They have been offered bazillions uh, by record labels. They have said, go fuck yourself. We didn't need you guys. We sure as hell don't need you now. And so from an entrepreneurship perspective, they're amazing. Anyway, so we do all that. It's incredible. And then we watch the show. Well, go look on YouTube and Google Whiskey Myers Red Rocks or just Google Whiskey Myers Live. These okay. guys shred the stage upside and down. I mean, they, to my taste, are insane. So, long story longer. Imagine if when these guys are getting started in their garage in Palestine, Texas, plus or minus 15 years ago as, as teenagers... And somebody says to him, you know what? There's a ton of music in the world. Paul McCartney's the greatest rock songwriter of all time. Nobody mm -hmm. will ever be able to touch him. Southern rock, Leonard Skinner, hard rock, everybody from fucking uh, ACDC, you know, blah, 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 blah. You guys mm -hmm. can't compete with any of those people. You're a bunch of donkeys from fucking Palestine, Texas, playing in your fucking garage. So, uh, so yeah. if they had said... I don't want to be part of the noise. At least for me, I would be missing my favorite new band in 20 years. And that's what I say to people who want to write a book or do a podcast or a newsletter or anything. If you have something to contribute to your point earlier, we are all unique. And so mm -hmm. if you can tap into your different and deliver it to the world in an impactful way, whether it's you writing a book or these guys at Whiskey Myers coming out with, you know, six or eight legendary fucking records and ripping stages across the world to shreds. Well, how terrible if you don't do that. Yeah, dude, I love that. That is a great, I, I just think the idea of, of summing it up um, in the, in a form of, you know, art, which we both appreciate. I know we both have similar tastes in music or at least appreciate certain artists. Um, have you ever read the book, The Five Regrets of the Dying? No, I haven't even yeah. heard of it. The Five Regrets of the Dying? Yeah. So palliative care nurse from Australia who um, starts noticing a pattern from her patients that, you know, they have sort of a common themology of things that they're regretting. And um, what blows me away is of, you know, when, you, when, you, when she starts to unpack these, you're thinking like, okay, these are going to be decisions they made. Uh, that they wish they hadn't done. You know, they 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 did a business venture that didn't turn out or they got into a relationship that blew up or something like that. Of the five regrets, four of the five were for things they didn't do, not things they did. The fifth was for one thing they did, which was work too much, which they claim prevented them from doing the other four things. 
But I just think it's so important to use that as a reference point. We're all ending up there, right? We talked about the meaningless of our lives. At the end of the day, we're all going to die. And, and you know, what happens now isn't going to be that meaningful in the long-term context of, of, of our humanity. But while we do have this moment, I think it's important that we are thinking about, are we making decisions that are pushing us outside our comfort zone to explore the possibilities so that we're not at the end of our life going, I wish I would have, could have, should have. You know, I once heard uh, the quote that hell is the person you are meeting the person you could have been on your deathbed. And I really kind of believe that that's true. Um, I, I wouldn't want to, knowing that, that this book was written based upon real life circumstances, it haunts me to think about when I get to that point in my life, will I have say, will I have said that I did all I could do, that I left it all behind on the field of life, that I soaked up every good thing that came my way and squeezed dry every opportunity to create meaningful connections with people, to challenge myself to my possibilities, to create as best as I can, and to give as charitably as I can. I hope that that can be something that I would want to profess, could profess. Yes, very much. And I don't know if it's different for women uh, because just my observation, women, radical gener uh, generalization, of course, generally tend to have a broader self-definition. And I don't know if it's because they're mothers or I, I don't know why, but women's identity tends to be more equally dispersed from whatever they do for work and whatever they do in their family and their friends. And, and yet for guys, again, radical gener generalization, a ton of our identity is who I am, is my job, my career, et cetera. So given that, what I've noticed with men in our world, maybe different timelines in different spaces, but in the tech innovation startup world, if you're not by the age of sort of roughly 40 to 45, if you're not viewed by your peers as accomplished, uh, as having achieved some level of mastery in your work, of achieving a level of income that allows you to provide for your family and live a good life, you don't have to be incredibly wealthy, but, you know, have... have, have as we say in Canada, put some moose on the hood, um, et cetera. The, the men I know who fail to achieve that by plus or minus 40 to 45 are fucked in the head pretty much for the rest of their lives for that exact reason, because at some level they understand that they could have been something much greater than they are and living with the fact that they never achieved the level of mastery that they could have, never uh, produced the results and outcomes that they could have, um, never provided their for their family at the level that they could have, never, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it'll make you fucking nuts. I have seen men go mm. crazy between 40 and 55 as they come to terms with the fact that, yeah, maybe they're okay, guys. They're kind of wankers. They never, in their opinion, forget anyone else's, in their opinion, they never, quote unquote, made it. Right. 
failure to launch, not just from leaving the home, but actually- Yeah, failure to launch. Yeah, look, I think, and I think it's changing too. I think as we start to realize that we're going to be working later in life, and quite frankly, I can't imagine not working. You know, I, I, the quote that haunts me is, right, you love what you do. I can see by your expression. I love what I do. This is not work. This is fun. I'm enjoying the opportunity to actually give my life agency and creative force to, to do something that's meaningful. But uh, you start dying when you believe that your best days are behind you. And I, I have a lot to look forward to in terms of, I think, a long and abundant life. I think of it that way. And, you know, um, the two most important times in your life, as Mark Twain said, is the day you're born and the day you discover why. So while it's going to come to each of us differently, when it does show up, do something with it. Like the best time to plant a tree, 10 years ago. The next best time, today. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I think it was Edison had to start over again at 66. He was like zero, you know, went to zero and started over and ended up, um, you know, obviously we know who he is today. Legendary, right? Um, and there's many, many, many stories of people who- One of my favorite Canadians of, of all time, one of my favorite artists of all time, Leonard Cohen. Hmm. Songs of Love and Hate, right, right behind me right here. You know the story of why he went back out on tour in his 70s, right? No, I don't know that story. His fucking manager stole all of his money. <laughs> well, he went okay. to a Zen monastery for a decade, hmm. okay? And his manager, who was supposedly one of his best friends for decades, blew all of his fucking money. Oh, wow. He got out of the Zen monastery to find out that he was broke. Yeah. And he said when he discovered this and was asked about it, he responded, Leonard Cohen responded exactly like Leonard Cohen. He said when he found out that it, it's the kind of thing that could put a dent in your mood. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what he quote unquote had to do. Hmm. He had no fucking money. So he went back on tour. And, oh, I have it downstairs. I have a poster of the tour. We got to go see him in his 70s. And he played for two and a half fucking hours mm. at, uh, in Oakland. Okay? Right. And so, to your point, this incredible tragedy gave him the ability to tour the world again that maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't have. Yeah. And... His fans didn't want him to leave, and, and he didn't want to leave. You know, how often does a 70-something-year-old dude play for two-plus hours? He wouldn't leave the fucking stage because he wanted to soak up every moment. Yeah. I love it. That's a great story. And it inspires so much hope because what happens, happens. You can't control it. Like, he could have just like, okay, well, I'm a victim, you know, and, you know, somebody else caused me to be this, and I'm just going to kind of roll over wet myself and you know, mail it in. That's it. But, you know, um, I'm inspired by Viktor Frankl and that ultimately talks about the agency of choice, right? Like that's the one thing they can never take from you. They can take away all your liberties, all your personal assets, whatever. But the one thing they couldn't take away from him was the ability to choose his attitude and response to it. And, you know, this comes back to kind of like you were talking about wisdom from wounds. Pain is like, you know, to be human, there's a few things we ultimately need. We need food, water, shelter, companionship. And I would add to it, we need struggles. We need pain. Because on the other side of pain is a better version of yourself. As long as you're willing to discover that there's purpose to the pain. That it's, you know, you don't just go through it. You grow, or you can grow through it. You can choose to grow through it. Because bad shit happens all the time. It happens to all of us. And yours is going to be different than mine. 
but it all has the same point. It's the crucible that we are refined in, right? So it, the challenges forge your character, you know, the, the pain gives you more purpose. The struggles can either build your strength or beat it out of you. You choose. And so somebody in their seventies having that happen. I mean, I love it. It's such a great story. <laughs> and one of my favorite things that Victor Frankl um, said, and I, I have, I have leaned on these words many times in moments of horrible personal crisis. He says, I try to be worthy of my suffering. Yeah, that's heavy. Incredibly powerful. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a mind fuck on it. It is. That is. Um, and there's so much suffering. You know, I, I think it was Timothy. I, well, let me say it this way. I think the first time I heard it was from uh, Pastor Timothy Keller, God rest his soul. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote this extraordinary book that Eddie sent to me after my friend was murdered. And mm -hmm. I believe the title of the book is uh, Walking Through Fire with God. I think that's the title of the book. <laughs> and one of the comments that he makes is that um, in many ways, the Bible is a manual for dealing with pain and suffering. <laughs> it's true. It absolutely is true. And I don't know if you want to go here. If you don't kick me under the table, it's fine. How much, I know you're a man of faith. Yeah. How much does your faith play into entrepreneurship, play into you wanting to have written this book? Hmm. Uh, I know it's a big part of your life outside of that, but who you are yeah. is a person of faith. So I'm curious totally. about that. Yeah, look at, I appreciate the question. I do want to go here because um, it's something I'm pretty passionate about. Like I firmly believe that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. And um, on a side note, I actually was with my father when he passed and literally watched his spirit leave his body. And it was one of the most impactful things I've ever seen because literally he was my dad and then he wasn't. And the difference was his spirit was gone. Um, but, you know, I... Um, I, I view scripture, which is a 66 books assembled by a motley crew of people from different walks of life, broken people, by the way, these people were not people that were per perfect. Like, you know, Moses, who's uh, credited with writing most of the old Testament, you know, this is a guy who murdered an Egyptian, expressed repeated cowardice of God, you know, didn't want to go to Pharaoh. And then finally broke the only set of the 10 commandments that existed <laughs> so this guy had some some flaws right joseph was a braggart uh you know he uh he he got himself in all kinds of of trouble and issues and ended up in prison and in the end becomes the savior to the nation of israel i i look at it as a, a bunch of stories that tease out what God's intention was for our humanity from the beginning. In fact, the book of Genesis, the very first description, job description given to humans after we were created on the sixth day. And by the way, God said we were very good. Everything was good and then we were very good. So I think that gives us some kind of special position in terms of creation. And he said, he wanted us to multiply. So go, you know, procreate. Then he said, fill the earth and subdue the chaos. And if you think about what was God doing over those previous six days, whether it was six days, six million, six billion, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's a story that tells the story of how we started to where we are today. 
But over that time, God was taking things that were chaotic and turning them to order. And then once he did that, he was filling it with creation. Now, it seems to me that the earth was already pretty full. Like there was a lot of stuff he made. So what did he want humans to do? He wanted us to fill it with creation, to continue his work, to build value for the planet and for people, and to do it in a way that was responsible. We were given the job to be the caretakers and the gardeners. And unfortunately, we've resorted to being the takers. And the book, the books kind of tell that story, how we go from like a, a good start, a brokenness to a redemptive story. And, um, you know, I feel very compelled in what I do with Lomi and Pila that I'm doing something that not only is expressing creativity and the gifts that I've been given, but also it's contributing to both people and the planet. Because at the end of the day, it came down to like, Jesus distilled everything, all these, like, I think there's a, between the 10 commandments and all the other stuff that goes through Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all that, there's like 700 or so rules and stuff, which basically just made it point that it wasn't possible. Like no human could actually live to this potential. But he distilled it down to two things, love God and love each other. And the first one was by loving God, love creation, because this is what he created. This is the garden that he created for us. So love it, look after it, and then love each other. And if we can get those two things right, that's his intention for our humanity. And, um, you know, it's a time like this when we see the conflicts in the Middle East that I'm reminded it, it is that simple, but also that hard. You know, we want to believe in world peace, but unfortunately we've never known in 4,000 years of record history, we've never known a world of peace. And, um, it is that simple though. And, uh, my hope is that I can help propagate that kind of uh, goodness on the planet. Thank you for that, Brad. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on, brother? Chris, I, I'm just thrilled we get to do life together. I'm so sorry we didn't get a chance to hang out in San Francisco or there. You, you got COVID, but you know, uh, it comes to all of us. And uh, I was so looking forward to being with you and Brad. I, we, you know, had the hotel booked and all that and COVID got me, but um, hopefully we'll be together in person soon. Yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to breaking the bread together, breathing the same air, and uh, and do what I love to do, which is create magic memories with people who matter. So love to do that with you. Well, thank you, Brad, and and thank you so much, both to you and Matt for uh, including uh, me and the other pirates in Lomi. It's an incredible mission, incredible technology, and you guys are legendary to work with. It's our joy. That was the legendary Brad Peterson. The new book is called Startup Santa, a toymaker's tale of 10 business lessons learned from timeless toys. Pick up your copy today. And you can find more about Brad at bradpeterson.com. That's brad, P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N.com. And if you know someone who would enjoy this real dialogue, please share it with them now, right now, as in find the little button, press it, off you go. And we also appreciate your social media shares and word of mouth because WOM is, was, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. We'd like to thank you. We appreciate you investing part of your life with us. And be sure to check out bottleneck.online. They've created the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant who's a real person powered by technology, be sure to go to bottleneck.online today. And our friends at Atre.net have been building preeminent B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out at Atre.net. That's A-T-R-E dot net. And make a difference if you can by supporting Doctors Without Borders. Hit them up at DoctorsWithoutBorders.org. Give generously. 
Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All Oddcasts contain nuts, all rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, yoga instructor, shaman, and category designer before doing anything about anything you hear here today. Warning, in California, drivers blocking traffic in the left-hand lane by law, can receive a $238 fine. So please, don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our technical execution and build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm. Joan Jett was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thanks, Candy Dandy, and Chris does love his mom and dad. Hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together. And our deepest, deepest apologies go to Elizabeth Holmes. You may be getting out of jail two years early, but we'll never have time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.